in the summertime. Yeah. It's officially sports season again. This this is such a dummy, JD, oblivious, just buried in his work thing. I'm thinking about a million different things. But, yeah, March Madness starts today, which is the best because there's just sports on on all day, the entire time. And that's what we had yesterday. There was this Canada baseball game, and I've had a couple of days where we get three o'clockers. And you're sitting there, and you're watching Canada baseball, and it's fun. Sucks that they lost. I'll talk more about it later. But watching all these games, and I think it was ju- it was just this morning where I saw an ad because they're advertising for the biggest shows on the planet now. But I saw an ad for Ted Lasso, and I went, "Oh right, that's back. Nice. I love Ted Lasso." And then I went, "How could I miss this?" And I went, "Yes, because it is spring." Spring is officially here. I would like to announce, we've been confused in this city because it's the darkest winter ever on Toronto's record. I don't know, somebody, I think I saw a reel about it. That's how you get the news. I'm just reporting what I saw on Instagram as a fact. (laughs) That's 2023. Uh, I think it was one of the darkest winters in Toronto history. Maybe that's the best way to put it. It was dark. It's been gloomy. We're supposed to get some more rain. It's been snowing late. Feels like it's been prolonged. It's not. Spring is here. March Madness is here. March Madness equals spring. Blue Jays baseball is spring. They, they call it spring training. Okay? And we're just a couple of weeks away from the Toronto Blue Jays playing actual serious baseball games. Where they open up the season against what, who could have been a Canadian hero, Tyler O'Neill, and kind of is, and I'll explain that later. But yeah, watching sports during the day, and then all of a sudden I'm watching the Leaf game, I'm doing Leaf talk last night, and then that rolls over, and I look at my just the, the wind-down time after I do Leafs talk, where I just want to see and check in on all the other sports. And then there's this Golden State Warriors-LA Clippers game just sitting there for me, begging me to watch it. Actually, first I watched the end of the Boston Celtics-Minnesota game, because that was in the fourth quarter. And the Celtics win by two points because Minnesota hits a three with no time left on the clock to cover. So anybody who bet on the Celtics last night to cover the spread, I I apologize to you. I feel horrible for you. Um, either way, there was just it's just jam-packed right now. You're looking at the schedule and you're saying, oh, okay, there is something every single night. We are going to get March Madness now that is going to carry us into Blue Jays baseball. We are going to have playoffs for, I was going to say both the Raptors and the Leafs. Raptors' last game was encouraging, but either way, we're he- we're here, we're here, and it's jam-packed time. Then you throw on top of it all the NFL news that's going down right now, where it's just non-stop signings, new faces, new places, always fun. We are in that phase now, though, of the NFL free agency, where the signings are starting to get bad. <laughs> like the signings are starting to be the guys where you go, glad that wasn't my team that did that. We're there. We've we've. We've stopped. The Aaron Rodgers stuff we're going to talk about with Dan Hanzoos today, one of my absolute favorites, a huge Jets fan from, uh, yeah, one of the best podcasts on the planet around the NFL when it comes to football. I think it's the number one. It might even be number one ranked. Pretty sure it is. So we'll cover all the Aaron Rodgers stuff. But, yeah, we're into the Patriots having to sign Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm going, I didn't really like Juju Smith-Schuster when he was with Patrick Mahomes. So am I really going to like him with Mac Jones? Who are your other receivers, New England Patriots? Baker Mayfield got $4 million to be the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
that's a bit of a humbling experience. Tom Brady may have not have been prime Tom Brady anymore in Tampa Bay, but having the feeling of being late in a game down a score with Tom Brady versus being down late all of the game because you have Baker Mayfield, I think is going to be a hard adjustment for the Tampa Bay Buccaneer fans. Anyway, we're into that part of the year. But last night, Leafs play a measuring stick game. And I'm a believer in these. I'll talk to Christopher Stieg in about five minutes, and I'll ask him what he thinks about him because he was texting me last night, and I, I didn't, I didn't want to step on any of his thoughts. But there's a few things that I want to cover from this game before we get to Chris. Number one, actually, is that I, I didn't do on Leafs Talk last night or didn't even discuss because we don't get to listen to the post-game audio. I have to listen to it retroactively. And, yeah, sometimes I don't even get to it all. Sometimes, you know, my, my producer, Austin, will send me some clips and I'll listen to a couple of them. And that's what I did last night. I went, all right, let me hear what Sheldon Keefe had to say. And there was nothing that I think is really worth playing. There's nothing that was earth-shattering in terms of an actual quote. It wasn't even like the game before where he was talking about being up to nothing. I love how that's a quote in the city, by the way, is when the Leafs blow a lead and their coach says, hey, we're on home ice, we have a 2 nothing lead, you can't lose that. And people go, ooh, spicy quote. Spicy quote from the coach saying, win the games where you are the probable winners, I would say, what, 90% of the time? Either way, there was nothing that he said, but the tone of the answers, it was funny, it, they... Lately, this has not even just been a, a yesterday thing. The tone of some of the answers, to me, has sounded a little Babcock. Where there's pushback to basically most of the things that the reporters are asking. And I don't think that's because Sheldon Keefe is a jerk. I don't think that uh, like there's much behind it other than this. I think this is a guy who is really starting to feel a bit of the pressure and is getting annoyed by it, and, and it's just coming out in that way. He's doing the 11-7 and 7 thing. He has to run his bench differently. He's juggling his lines. Now he's meeting with the media. They've lost a couple of games in a row. Granted, they get the loser point against the, the Colorado Avalanche. Congrats to them for that. That's very nice. That's the Stanley Cup champions. But yeah, that, it had to dawn on him a little bit more yesterday that, hey, we're in the middle of March. We're in the middle of March. You're not going to have your full complement of players until the very end of the season, whether that's the addition of Matthew Nyes or the return of Ryan O'Reilly. You've got defense pairings that you're still really trying to figure out. Good news. There's some good news coming uh, in terms of what you saw in that game last night, but he's probably feeling a little bit of pressure when it comes to who he's going to have to put in net. And I just, what I'm hearing right now is a guy who's getting a little testy. What I hear right now is a coach who is starting to just say, it's like when you're waiting to write a final exam and you've done pretty much all the studying that you can do and you're just sitting there in that exam room waiting or outside the exam room waiting, sitting on a floor somewhere, leafing through your book and going, this is the worst part. This is the worst part. Just let me sit down in that room and write the damn test. Can I just pay somebody any amount of money to move into that room and get this thing over with. And he has to be feeling that. 
because it's pretty clear. Leafs get bounced in the first round. We'll have a million different questions about, well, they move a core piece. Can they return Ryan O'Reilly? Do they have to fire Dubas? Should they still accept? The one certainty, guaranteed, nail in the coffin, no doubt about it, one billion percent thing that's happening is Sheldon Keefe is gone. And so, yeah, I think he sounds a little testy. Anyway, he's been trying to spin this thing as positive, the 11-7 and 7 thing. And he talked about Tampa Bay being the model of this and going, well, Tampa Bay did it. They won two Stanley Cups. I looked it up. I went, all right, I remember them doing that. I remember people saying that. But how many games was it actually? Out of the 48 playoff games that Tampa Bay played when they won those Cups, they ran 11-7 and seven for 11 of them. It's a little overstated. It's a little overstated. And last night, they take a bench minor for too many men. And that happens in every game, or not every game, but a bunch of games. And so you go, hey, maybe this had nothing to do with it. But I, I did wonder a little bit if that was a point of frustration. Marner's the only guy that notices, skates over the bench. Is really they, they take the penalty. And I went, maybe there's just a little bit too much going on right now with this team. Either way, here's the good from yesterday. The good is that Riley scored, and then he looked like a more confident player. And, and I do wonder how much of his season is between the ears. There's always going to be stuff with Morgan Riley that is going to piss fans off, whether it's the – it's not to try to sound like Mr. Coach over here, but whether it's the gap control, whether it's the way that he takes away the front of the net, whether it's his ability to win puck battles. As a defensive guy, it's pretty well established he's not – the, he's not him, as the youth say. But really solid game for him where he was just engaged. He was yapping on the bench. He scores a goal. I, I liked seeing that. That was a reminder that I do think he is a big game player and that you probably will see the better version of him once things start to tighten up. The games get more meaningful and maybe he's able to get out of his head a little bit more. Um, Samsonov played well again, which was downplayed by Keefe. Should be noted. That was another thing from the postgame. He downplayed... The performance by Samsonov. Samsonov made a huge breakaway save on Nikushkin. And Keefe went, well, you know, he's mostly saving stuff from the outside. But he was great. He looked solid. He looked confident. He did the, the compliment sandwich. Like, yeah, he looked great. But he didn't really have to stop too many hard shots. But he looked really confident in that. Okay, cool. And yeah, Austin Matthews looks like a man possessed again. But either way, it's still last night, if we're doing the measuring stick thing, it did feel a little bit like the old Leafs where... They couldn't generate a ton of offense. Their top guys, other than Morgan Riley early on a broken play, couldn't score. The other team was able to slow down the top dudes, and then you didn't really feel too much of a push from the bottom six. So I, I missed Ryan O'Reilly last night. I would have loved to see him, how he would have slotted in, but that's a weird measuring stick game to kind of break down, move forward off of. All I do know is McKee let me know that Tampa's only three points back now. Leafs have a game in hand, but all of a sudden this is a real stretch run. Christopher Stee, two-time Stanley Cup champion, uh, creator of the Clever app. Good morning, buddy. Uh, I thought you were just going to keep rambling on forever. Yeah, well, I, was, I could. I probably could. I got a lot of things to say. Yeah. Are you upset? You do got a lot of things to say. No, I like it. Oh. Yeah, I got, uh, I got a couple of questions for you before we get into the Leafs game. Um, yesterday I had more conversations about something from my show, and this is always the way it works is I try to bring up sports things, and people go, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then I bring up things about real life, and they go, yes, let's discuss. Yesterday a quarterback named Dan Orlovsky tweeted that he uses his towel 30 times before he stops using it. I believe that 
most guys use their towel more than they let on. You played pro hockey, so you're used to just like an equipment manager coming on, showing up. You're just used to throwing your towel on the floor, disappearing, and then there's a new fresh towel for you the next use. But like, where do you land on the amount of times you use the towel at home before you put it in the laundry basket? Uh, are you talking 30 separate times? Yeah. <laughs> I say, yeah, it, okay, I want to defend him. I want to defend him. Everyone's saying he's gross. Everyone's saying he's disgusting. I, I think I've hit that number before. Like, I, I think if I haven't hit that number, I've come dangerously close to it. I've definitely done it. I don't do it as often now because I just have more towels. He's too rich to not have more towels. He, like, his excuse is a little bit tough. I'll just say that I definitely am in the camp of uses it more and then finally one day goes, yeah, it's probably time. Like, I, I feel like guilt makes me change it more than anything else, where I go, yeah, how long has it been? Uh, if I'm asking that question, it's time to switch it up. Well, there, here's the other thing. My wife will just grab it off the rack, so there's not really even a, a chance to get to 30. I would say, you know, two to five, two to five showers, somewhere in that range, because if, if the wife sees it sitting there, it, it's gone. And she's a bit of a germaphobe, but there, I will go into this. Towels. Towels are a bit pet peeve. So I go to Lifetime Fitness and Ajax, humble plug. Everybody Plus, um, Hutch, he's the towel guy. Best towel guy ever. He actually wants a job at the Leafs. So if the Leafs are listening, Hutch is a great towel guy. Guys leave towels all over the floor. They just rely on Hutch to pick them up. So I'll come through the change room and I'll say, everyone, pick up your damn towels. Hutch isn't here just to serve you. So guess who Hutch loves the most? Yeah, of course. How much would you tip the locker room attendants at the end of the year? Oh, I mean, it depended on which guy helps you the most. So some locker room attendants are theirs. They're there for you to, uh, well, they're there to sharpen your skates. They do a lot more for you. So obviously they get more, uh, but each guy gets a little bit different based on who's allocated to you or to what player, but let's not go into specifics. Okay, fine. We won't do that. All right. Let's go into specifics about 11 and 7. Um, do you like it? And if not, or if so, like, what are your biggest issues with it? Well, I think you've seen last night, sometimes it can, it can get confusing with certain guys when they're going on the ice. Uh, you know, some guys are playing in pairs, especially with the fence, and then they, it can get confusing. You know, you looked at Tampa Bay. They have done it in the past. It's worked for them. I think the way it works is if you're seventh defenseman, literally doesn't even play or he plays as a forward at times because what you're doing is you're allowing one extra forward to get extra minutes through that rotation so i think the forwards like it a little bit better it forces you to play uh you know your so maybe marner he'll stack back on the fourth line they're trying to find offense from the fourth line through doing that or they can put matthews or they can put certain guys on in that hole and, and it kind of helps them with line matchups. So I know we did it a little bit in Chicago too, mainly because of injuries. But I know top guys generally like it to get in it, to get into a rhythm, and it helps them. Uh, and again, like East Coast Hockey League, have you kind of looked into this yet? I think they only do ten forwards. Not saying that that's the way to go, but I know forwards generally like it because it lets it allows them to get in the game. But yeah, if you're if you're flip flop and it's going to allow for bad communication, you're going to see too many men. And maybe that seventh D man's not generally happy because he's only going to play a couple minutes and, you know, Eric Gustafson goes on, there's a too many men. And then also he'll play a random minute in overtime as well. And, and he's probably like, my legs are frozen. So it's not fun for him to do that. But uh, again, I think it really depends where you're at, what players you have, and are you more comfortable with the seventh D man on there or a, a 12 forward who may not bring much of what you're looking for? 
Hmm. You know, I'm glad I brought this up with you today, and this is why you know I actually wanted someone's perspective of who's done it. Because for a lot of us, we're looking at it and saying chemistry, 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 and there's too much going on. And and I've I've been in that camp. Like I won't lie, is just there's there's too much happening, and I don't really love the idea too of trying to establish who your defensemen are. Um, at this point of the year, everyone's been saying the Leafs have eight defensemen. And I keep trying to say, no, 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 no. Like they have seven guys who could or who should be getting into playoff games. And one of them isn't even playing right now in Luke Shen because he's very happy to be sitting up in the, in the press box. He's happy. He's going to be content. But that's actually kind of an interesting theory as to maybe why we're starting to see a more engaged Austin Matthews. Um, he shot the puck five times last night. He led his team. He's been nastier lately. He's been better. Marner has looked great. Obviously, Nylander has had a really spectacular season. But now I'm starting to wonder maybe this actually is a good thing for the Leafs, just letting those guys play a ton, find their rhythm right before the playoffs, and then just basically get them acclimated to playing Connor McDavid minutes as they head into a series with Tampa. Like that, They're going to be the determining guys anyway, so why not run them into the ground? <laughs> well, so, yeah, I was looking at it. They played 29 and 27 minutes in in games where you're supposed to be tinkering with lines, tinkering with new combinations and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, I understand what you're saying. It is probably frustrating as a fan when you're watching your top two players play, down, you know, 30 minutes. They played 10 more minutes than a defenseman. How many times do you see a forward play 10 more minutes than your top defenseman? So, I, again, I know this is tinker time right now, or it's supposed to be, and maybe that's why you're seeing uh, Keith get a little bit flustered, you know, with questions, or he's not giving you full answers and stuff like that. Mm. He's trying to tinker. I still don't think what he's doing is showing what guys he's brought in enough of what they can do. I know Noel Chari had a couple goals a few games back and, and Lafferty, but again, you look at him seven minutes, nine minutes, 12 minutes, you know, these are guys that you should be trying to get a lot of minutes to right now. If you're trying to rest certain guys going into a big playoff run, like I don't see why you had to play guys 29 and 27 minutes right now when you have also again you have seven d-men on there you could move a guy up i know again back to when i played with chicago talking about the 11 and 7 sheldon brookbank was that seventh defenseman and he kind of was there to also give guys a shift off as a forward because he could play forward and d but that's where it becomes a bit of a management a time management for guys on the ice who's feeling good get guys out in certain situations maybe you could fluff their offensive zone face-offs a little bit more to find them more minutes there, but you don't need these guys playing that many minutes leading up to a playoff run. And I think hey, that Austin playing well, though, I, I yeah. do like his engagement in the D zone. I think we talked a little bit about it at the start of the year, just you know his battles, and then if, if he's not battling in the D zone, he's not going to get the puck near as much. And then that Cali Yarncroft goal, he was a man possessed in the corner. He got it out. Obviously, they go down on a rush and they score, and he beats a guy up the ice. I can't remember the the defender skating back or after him, but he he beats him up the ice. So. If he's playing like that and he's engaged, you're ready. But you don't need to have a Austin Matthews playing engaged hockey for twenty or twenty seven minutes, you know, three, four weeks prior to playoffs. Okay, I, I, I for sure. That's pro- that's too many. But they went into overtime and yeah, they were gonna they they were looking for that extra point because they actually are in it with Tampa. Last night yeah. though, I don't think they're gonna do this over and over and over again, but you are right that the minutes are way up. I think I was looking at it. 
This uh, I was looking at it yesterday, and I want to say he and Marner are now averaging with the 11 and 7, basically like 23 minutes a night. Marner is now averaging more minutes than Connor McDavid, who just routinely leads the league. So this is yeah. this is definitely like a real byproduct. The outlier is that it's the extra four or five minutes because of the overtime or them leaning on them a little bit extra in the Avalanche game. But maybe this is proof too, though, that the Leafs use that Avs game as real serious business. That they went, you know what? This is the Stanley Cup champions. They're in our building. Um, it's March 15th. Like, we're the middle of March. We're right here. Let's see exactly the way that we would do this like a playoff game. And they rolled the lines like that. Maybe this ends up coming full circle, where at the very beginning of Matthews and Marner's career, the, the coach was criticized for not playing them enough. In fact, he had to fly down to Arizona to promise Matthews that he would play more. Everybody was, you know, bitching and griping about not having enough of it. That this turns around and ends up being, yeah, actually come playoff time, you're going to play Matthews and Marner 24 minutes a night. Yeah, you got to ride your horses. Uh, again, you got to ride your horses, but you also got to know when to pull them back a little bit and get them ready for the show. It's it's just, you know, you're managing their bodies, you're managing their energy. I'm not saying, or I mean, I don't know exactly what's going to happen four weeks from now, but if you continually run your guys into the ground, and every hockey player wants to be out 27, 28, 29 minutes. I mean, that's a dream. You go out there, you're in good shape, you're playing every other shift, you're, you know, you get the puck, you, you don't really got to work extremely hard all the time because you know you're managing your energy throughout the game. It's it's a great feeling when you're playing that many minutes. But again, I just as a coach, those are decisions you have to make. I, I didn't like what Babcock did either. Like what he was doing was the, the complete opposite. You know, Matthews is getting 18 minutes. He's not even out on the last five on six when John Tavares is, or certain other guys are. You know, there's a lot of stupid things that Babcock did, and I, we don't need to go there. But when you're looking on the flip side, it is a time management thing. You know, I'm coaching seven-year-olds at a tournament. Just say, why would I run my best player all tournament long and then have no energy for the finals if I'm trying to make it into simple terms, right? You don't have the – you have your best players there, but you have to manage the horses unless they're going to run right in the ground. So that is something when I look at minutes, you you start to consider and worry. Okay, so when does the tinker time that you're talking about have to stop? Like what? When? At what point of the schedule do you have to say, okay, you need X amount of games yeah. left, while to actually just see what your lines are going to be, to see if you're going back to twelve and six, or if you're going to stay eleven and seven, whatever, whatever it is. How many games left? Because the weird thing with this team is that they're not going to get O'Reilly back right until maybe the playoffs, because he can skate, and I'm getting the risk of the re-injury for the finger is. Sneaky high at four weeks from every doctor that I've asked. They go, that injury, if you rush what, it back, you'll injury, hurt it again. Though, was it a displacement? Like, did he have to get a pin in his finger, or was it a fracture? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, there is apparently the big difference, but he did need it splinted. And so apparently if you yeah. get it splinted, then it's it's one of the ones where they do view it a little bit more seriously. Well, I, again, I broke my yeah. So, uh, well, I broke. Uh, I think it's a metacarpal or metatarsal, whatever. Basically, I was out nine oh, weeks, so eight to nine weeks, and they had to yeah. repin my finger right back into my my joint. So, uh, I again, that was eight nine weeks, and I came back right before the playoffs in 2015, and I was I was garbage. So, let's not go there. Um, well, but what anyway. was the hardest part of working your way back? Because we do need to go there. <laughs> Well, the the biggest thing I found, again, I don't think he did what I did because mine was a lot worse, I believe, at the eight to nine weeks. The the problem with me is I lost all my grip strength because it's my top hand. 
So I, I blocked the shot. It was my top hand. And then that top hand has a hundred percent grip on your stick all the time. So your bottom hand, you're not always gripping the stick. So my grip strength went way down. I had no more, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't get up to the same power to grip my stick. My hand was always hurting and I felt like I had a marble in my palm because of the, the way the, the bone broke. So again, I'm not trying to scare the leaf fans on that's what uh, O'Reilly has, but, because uh, I don't think it is uh, what he has. But, again, that's why it makes a big difference. What what happened? Where was the break? And how many weeks can it be? And how much grip strength? Was it his bottom hand? Was it his top hand? All this stuff. So um, I think it's it was his bottom, bottom hand. hand. It, it was yeah. his bottom hand. So that's always yeah. a, that's a positive. Okay, well, that's good. But, no, that's why it's important. Um, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, but he comes back, he you're going, you got to go 12 and 6. He comes back right before the playoffs. Knock on wood. Hopefully he does. Okay. You go, you go back twelve and six. You, you just right, you I was can have. About this last back. night though, I, I was thinking about this. Okay, so let's say you go back twelve and six. Fine, but I will admit that yesterday may have changed my opinion just a touch on the guaranteed nature of how much he needs to be the three C and spread the wealth down the lineups. Like, I think they're going to end up doing both where he plays center with Tavares on the wing and Nylander on the wing. And that he also plays defensive zone draws and shuffles it like down the lineup with some of the other guys. But yesterday, just watching Kerfoot still be in the top six and get really meaningful minutes there. And that they only have one bunting and that you're only going to potentially see knives for three games if his team ends up going all the way. And plus, I just the idea of them playing Matthew Nyes even, you know, 14, 12 minutes in the playoffs seems ludicrous to me at this point. It's such an over expectation. But yeah, I do wonder if like the stuff we're talking about here right now, the added minutes for your horses that they're going to ride these guys in the playoffs and that Ryan O'Reilly is actually going to play in the top six a lot more than we thought when they first made that trade. If there's a stronger case to be made for it because they still don't have that other that other left winger. Yeah, again, I don't mind if he plays that, that two-hole. You're going to have to be able to flip them. So if, if you want Tavares to go out for more offensive zone draws and, and O'Reilly take more defense, and then you're taking O'Reilly off the face-off. So basically you're just sending him out there for a face-off. He comes out of the zone, he gets off the ice. There's, there's a lot of ways that you could utilize him as a kind of like a 2-3-C at times. And that's what Quenville used to do with guys like John Madden and, and David Bull. And David Bull would go out there for shifts with the first line, take a face-off, come right back on the ice, and they'd flip for a winger. So you can get creative in the ways you use guys. You could start them as a 2-C. You could put them as a 3. You could play them in offensive zone just to win a face-off for Tavares if Tavares is struggling on face-offs or if you don't want him to back-check. There's a lot of ways you can use O'Reilly, and I think that's a, that's a really big key factor at your disposal as a coach you just got to utilize it that way and make sure you're maximizing what O'Reilly can do so I, I I think again if you're coming into certain games you can do different lineups obviously players want consistency but you can do different lineups with this type of lineup against other teams and you know you're playing the Tampa Bay Lightning maybe you want to keep them just as a 3C if you're playing a good you know a, a good second line with guys if you know if Stamkos is now in the second line or Kucherov's on the second line and you got to match a lot better and you don't think Tavares can get it done so I think you can get creative with where you slot guys where you put them the, obviously guys can always move to the wing really smart players and they have a lot of those guys so it, again, it's it's really how he utilizes all these guys in the situation, and do certain guys get enough minutes to do what they do best? Yeah, see, because this is why when you're talking about the tinker time and when they need to start to tighten things up, 
I just, I, I'm sure there are guys that want that done. And I'm sure to a degree, Sheldon Keefe, which is that he had more certainty with his lineup. But I, I think that maybe what we learned yesterday and what we're just discussing right now is that it's just, it's never going to go away with this group. That you just sort of have to accept it is what it is. May, maybe what you're really hoping for is that they can figure out the D pairings and say, hey, these are concrete. These are what you're going to have come playoff time. Like, that's the one that you really, really want to know. Um, and that you won't be going with the seventh defenseman or who is going to be the person that ends up coming out. Who's going to be the person that's the first guy in. But. All I can think of is if you have a matchup line and David Camp is your center of that group, yeah, you're probably not going to score a lot, but that that's a pretty good defensive zone. Like he's your, one of your best penalty killers, one of your best defensive forwards. You feel better with having a Chari. That's what Zach Aston Reese does. That's the thing that you've talked about a lot: is can you get a group yeah. that is in your bottom six that can just punt? And that that group definitely can. And if you have Lafferty down the middle now too, a Chari having the ability to take faceoffs as well, Kerfoot back down your lineup, Yarncroft potentially back down your lineup if you're deciding to move Ryan O'Reilly up. Um, maybe having a little bit of a scoring punch if you can get Matthew Nyes in and he actually contributes to your team. I just, uh, yeah, there, I just think that there's a, a stronger case than I first realized for, yeah, more minutes of Ryan O'Reilly in the top six and the bottom six getting him sometimes, but not all of the times. And then just trying to add, again, a little bit more Marner, a little bit more Matthews, a little bit of what we're seeing right now with the 11 and 7. Well, I, there's going to be a hybrid for O'Reilly and Tavares. I yeah. think which you're actually going to see. And back to Noel Achari, like you know, you have guys now that can take it. You know, as a righty center, you have Yarncroft. You have a lot of guys yeah. at your disposal that you can utilize in situations. So, if you're on a long chain, if you're on a long change and you need to go take a defensive zone face off. Now you can throw these certain guys out just to get the job done. So that's kind of what we go into. It's why would you throw – when I look back at their playoff series and we start to get into the details of the game and Tavares is taking a D-zone face-off, maybe because he had to at the time, now you have guys that can go out there and do that, do that specific job to get it done. And again, like you're saying, there's going to be tinkering and a hybrid between certain guys in the top six, bottom six, so what? I think you have enough depth now that you don't even really have to worry about the third line at times because maybe you will have Tavares on the third line or maybe you sink Marner or Nylander down to the third line to create matchup issues for other teams. So again, you can get creative with this lineup. You have enough dynamic offense, enough guys that can do a lot of different things. You just got to utilize what they do. And Matthew Nye's you know, again, I don't know a lot about him, but you look at Chris Kreider, a big body, came in from college when he played. He scored here and there, but the biggest thing guys like that or a Makar, when they come from college, if they're physically ready to do, is they bring a team energy. And, I, and maybe he's not going to score a lot, but if he can bring a big body and he can bring energy, even to a bottom six, a third line, something that they maybe don't quite have, a skill set to a third line that they don't have, that could also be an uplifting factor to a roster as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing with Chris Kreider is he got a lot of power play time. And if you look back yeah. at the points that he got in the, in the playoffs, it was a lot of power play. And I, I don't know. Well, Nyes definitely isn't going to be doing that much. Even if he slots into the second unit, those guys only get the, like, you know, well, 20 McCart, seconds McCart. at the very end. Yeah, McCarr too. Yeah. But you're you're hoping like you know you have Kerfoot on a fourth line, and I like Kerfoot because he's very again 
what were we talking about three, four years ago? I like how you could use him at left wing, right wing, center. He's he's a Swiss Army knife in a sense. But maybe you're playing a team that needs a bigger body and a guy that can play a skill game too. And you know you're playing against Tampa Bay Lightning fourth line. They got you know Tanner Janot, and they're dominating you down low and off the cycle and behind the net and stuff like that. So maybe these are other types of guys that you can have at your disposal to help combat a lot of that that grind because. In the playoffs, you can't just score off the rush to win. You can't just yeah. score on the power play to win. You have to, you have to, man, you have to create offense. Sorry, by a numerous amount of ways, and especially ozone time, consistent ozone time, staying in there, grinding down, beating, you know, getting good line changes, getting another line out there, and then also off the rush power play and all these things. So you have to create offense from a, a multitude of ways. By the way, when we've talked about trying to create offense. Yeah, Sheldon Keefe has clearly, throughout his tenure, been a ride the stars come playoff time. Like, I'm just looking through game logs and, like, yeah, some of these are overtime, but you can see when you look through Matthews' game logs, like 28 minutes, 30 minutes under Keefe, like 27, 47, 28, 15. Look at Spetson, although he'd be like nine minutes, yeah. one assist or of something. Of course. No, right? of course, but it. I, I just think it's even funnier. Now, granted, there was a lot of discussion around Matthews' uh, conditioning in his second year in the NHL, but Babcock, year two, this is his game log for minutes, 15-24, uh, 18-58, 17-11, 20-52, okay, 15-25, uh, 16-50, um, those were his, uh, and then 18-06 in the elimination game. That, that was... Uh, Matthew's game log under the, the former well, coach. That was the game he didn't even go on for the final six yeah. on five. Yeah, that's wild. Like, it's just so crazy to see only one game in seven where he hit the 20-minute mark and two games where he hit 15. Um, anyway, so do you buy my thing? Like, what what is a measuring stick game to you? You really – how much goes into one like that where, yeah, you've got two teams that really want to vie for a cup later in the year versus... Because that's not a team like Boston or Tampa, right, where you feel like you're showing a little extra something or you're going to see one of those teams soon. That's a Western Conference opponent. Like, you think they took that as seriously as it seemed last night? Yeah, you try to take every game as seriously as it seems, but you really right. don't. Yeah, you don't higher. really know yeah. until you get to the playoffs at the end of the day. Like, these guys are all just trying to get through the rest of the season playing at a high level getting healthy into the off season. So you can go into each game and they're, they're not, they're not panicking to get in the playoffs. So I don't think there's a sense of desperation. Like let's treat this as a playoff game. Maybe you're saying it, but deep down inside, you're going out there, you're working hard. You're trying to get through the game. You are using it as a technically a measuring stick, I guess, to see where certain guys are at and what their fitness level and stuff like that. But overall you are just taking it as another game, you know, play it hard work on certain things, tinker with things, but you go back to tinker time, it's starting to get down to that game. I think, what is it, eight or nine now since the guys came? Seven, eight, nine? You have their, your 10-game 10, 10 window. I'm sure they had a strategy going into this of what it would be, but now you're going to want to get set and, and use a certain lineup to create, you know, get some consistency going into the playoffs. But it's a hard question because you, you want to get emotion and passion out of guys, especially leading in the playoffs, but it is hard when you're, you're basically set in stone. Tampa Bay's coming up behind, but at the end of the day, doesn't really matter with that second or third seed, I don't believe. Ooh, uh, Toronto's been so good at home this year that I, yeah, and especially given that one of the biggest questions for them is the goalie and that Samson is so good at what's home. What's his record? What's the difference in record at home? 
I don't I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, he has been like there was a point in the season where I think he was the number one win percentage of any goaltender at home. Um, well, who do you start the, right now? You start oh, Samsonov. Samsonov. Yeah, 100%. no question. Yeah, you start Samsonov today, but you're basically looking at it where I was talking to Kevin Woodley the other day, who's a uh, writer for NHL.com and uh, just uh, kind of a goalie guru guy, writes for Ingoal Magazine. Um, he made the point that they're basically going to have to try the tandem at some point if they're making a deep playoff run. Like, it's it's very hard for me to envision if Toronto is playing in the Eastern Conference Finals that it's been Ilya Samsonov the entire time. That you use that to you, your advantage, that you have two guys that should that have been sharing the net all season long, shouldn't be a huge rhythm breaker for either of them. And yeah, if you start to slip in a series or one of the guys isn't playing up to snuff, that you, you go to the other one and you see what kind of look they give you, especially given uh, the matchup, which I think gets a little bit overlooked when it comes to goaltenders. But yeah, as of right now, day one... Um, it's it's hard for me to envision a scenario where they don't put Samsonov in net, given that he's just been better this year. Like he he's just been better, and now we've got four games in a row or five games in a row where Matt Murray's let in four more. It just I, I don't know I don't know what Matt Murray would have to do or what Samsonov would have to do at this point to to flip that opinion for most people. Yeah, well, you you do need both goalies to win the Stanley Cup in Toronto. You're going to have to use both uh, a little story in Chicago as well. Our first round, we were playing Nashville in 2015 and Crow couldn't stop a beach ball and um, Scott, yeah, Scott came in, lit it up, first round, put Crow back in in the second round and got the job done the rest of the way. So, goalies generally, most of the time, it's very hard for them to carry the torch without getting their backup or a certain guy in there to help them through a round, help them through a game or in big moments. So, both guys are going to have to stay ready and I think you know, if they start Samsonov psychologically, I don't mind it for Murray. Uh, you know, maybe it could be a thing where, hey, if, if Samsonov falters, this is my thing to run with. So it could be a, a psychological gain for Murray if, if he starts in the in the stables, basically, and let Samsonov go. And if he doesn't do good, you know, you kind of put that pressure on yourself. Like, okay, if he can't change it, I can change it. And that's generally how good athletes act. And maybe it could be a... Uh, it could be a win for Murray if if that's how they go into the playoffs. And hey, last thing I was thinking, how many Russian goalies are there? Lots, like top Russian goalies. goalies. Yeah. What are they doing there? Uh, they're doing something good. Again, I this is it's funny that you mentioned this because I ran out of time with Kevin. Um, when I do that on Tuesday, yeah, we had uh, on Tuesday we ran out of time. I wanted to hit a bunch of other stuff with the the young lads, but. The big topic that I want to hit on them is what? Why can't we get it right? And why is Russia? Man, look at I'll the states. I'll tell you why. Too. I'll tell you like why. Every, everybody's doing it so good, but us. Like we don't Russia, like Finland. Kids can't yeah. play goal till U ten. They have to do these flip flopping things. So, like, you, like so. Lot, by the time they get to U ten, they don't even want to play goal anymore. A lot of them. So there, there's that problem, which is a probably issue, but. You should probably bring on goalie minds to talk about this, but look at the NHL with Russian goalies right now and American goalies. It's it's out of this world. Well, there's there's got to be a bunch to it. Like, I, I will say that, yeah, you don't want to be a goal. Like I, as a as a kid who was a goalie, I can tell you that from my experience, anyways, of when I was coming up, the difficulty is, boy, you're already asking parents to pay so much money, and now it's even more. 
where it's yeah. like, hey, I've bought you all this equipment as a little kid and you're going to be playing hockey and I want to see you play. And also, if you're a parent, do you really want to see – like I talked about this with my mom all the time. <laughs> she was like, I hated being the goalie mom. Like I you're sitting imagine. there. I'm not really <laughs> watching the game. And then if you let a bad one in, all the parents in the crowd are sitting there like groaning and <laughs> it's like, oh, great. She was like, it was a nightmare for me to have to watch it. She was like, I was nervous every single time. It's no fun watching your kid get hit with a puck. And, but they're doing it in the other countries. So it's like, all right, they're figuring that out somehow. I think it's hard to project who's going to be big too. Like when you're yeah, like, when you're saying, hey, a 10-year-old, he doesn't know until you're putting him in net 10. I go, well, who even cares? Because now modern day goaltender, there's no more Darren Pangs, you know? Like you gotta, <laughs> you got to be 6'4". You got to be 6'3", basically, to to jump on this ride. And so if you're not that, then it doesn't matter anyways. You've basically like – no, like you've kind of pissed well, away any chance Gorgiev, of having. Gorgiev, Shesterkin, Sorokin—they're all what six feet, six one, maybe. No, they're not Shesterkin's big guys. Bigger than that. The short, no the smallest guy that is really good is Saros. He's what five eleven, five ten. Yeah, he's short. He's a shorter fella. I, is is Shesterkin that short? Like, is well, he? Well, here, here's a question one. for yeah. you. Yeah. As a kid, as a goalie, did you like yeah. sharing the net as a ten-year-old? Well, I didn't really have to because I was from Whitehorse Yukon, so it oh, wasn't so like there were goalie. so many goalies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it wasn't like, hey, you, sorry, bud, you're not getting it tonight. It was, hey, thank God we have you. I wasn't just playing goalie for yeah. my team. I played goalie for Team Yukon. I was like, every single time I'd go to our cabin, it was like all the old lads being like, bring your equipment so that we can go out on the ice, play shinny and shoot on you. Like, I was playing nonstop, so I was never really sharing other than when I actually played for, yeah, my territory, which was like Team Yukon, and then I was just the lesser of the goalies on the team. So, yeah, I had to split the net, and I didn't really care because I was having so much fun just basically being a part of the trips in the bus and I was a kid. But, yeah, um, yeah, I, I would have hated it, I think, because I always like the reason why I picked that position and why I think some kids do pick that position is that you want to feel like you're – in control of a game. Like I liked being a point guard. I always wanted to be a setter in volleyball and I wanted to be a goalie in hockey. Like those were, I think that you have to kind of encourage kids that are like that to gear them towards the position, but that's just the starting point. Like there's gotta be layers to this that I just don't know, obviously, because like, I just don't go deep enough down that, that hole of where do we miss it? Like it can't be the coaching because we've had some of the best guys ever. It can't be the access, the facilities, like, what the hell is it? Maybe it is just getting out of the starters blocks, but yeah, if you look at price, if we had Olympics tomorrow, price is a point. The point of entry of price is the is the biggest issue, I would say. Oh, it's it's huge. It's a huge problem. And like, yeah, had there not been free equipment for me to use at the rink um, until I was, I think I didn't own my own equipment until I was in. Yeah, Pee-wee. First year Pee-wee. That's when I first... But I, even then, I can still remember buying equipment and going, like, in a second-hand store. And, like, I had to get a job. I had to chip in. And it was insane. Like, it was nuts back then. So I can't even imagine now. And I bought all used stuff. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Uh, last thing before you go. I got one more for you. Um, do you think Morgan Riley's overly criticized? Because he's, like, the whipping boy this? in the city right now. Were we talking about this in February? Yeah, yeah, it was February when we are talking about when I I play my worst hockey, January, February. Uh And 
maybe he follows that trend because I do see his game turning around. And, and when we talked about Morgan Riley, it's his feet. So when he gets the puck and when he's not playing well, he's thinking before moving his feet. And when he's playing well, his feet move his his brain or his feet move his hands basically. So when I'm watching him yesterday, there was a lot of plays. He gets the puck, his feet are he's in transition, he's moving, he's getting out the ice. He's not perfect defensively and he's not perfect with the puck all the time. But when he's moving his feet, that's when he's a top tier defenseman or one of the better defensemen in the league. Again, not a guy who's always going to be the best of defenders, but a guy that can really change the game with speed and and when he, like you talk about gap and stuff like that. And I think right now Again, everyone gets on him about certain things. I think maybe those two months could be a bit of a down month for him. Maybe he's finding his game again. I I said that back two months ago. I hope coming into the playoffs, it kind of reinvigorates him. It gives him a new set of confidence. He starts to play better, and then he goes in the playoffs on a high because he's emotionally connected to the game, and he stopped thinking all the time about all the crap said about him. So, again, when I watch Morgan, I, I see positive signs. I see a lot of good things. And and I'm excited to watch him play in the playoffs. Again, a guy who needs to be emotionally connected to the game in order to execute what he wants to do and what he needs to do. But it all comes down from his feet because he has an incredible skating ability. Yeah, well, that actually think lines up with what we've seen before. Because if we're talking about, hey, who have been the Leafs that have been most consistent come playoff time throughout their tenure? Riley's been one of them. Um, and that's always been the thing that looms over this regular season is, yeah, maybe he has had some stuff going on. The injuries, the the talking points, his new contract, which it's funny when Mitch Marner struggled after his contract year, when uh, all these guys have had different playoff stuff, especially with Marner, though, and with Nylander, I would say. There was a lot of discussion of, hey, it's a lot of pressure that first year after you get the money. And Morgan Riley's older getting this one, but this was his first like massive, big money, huge deal. He was on a bargain deal. He was part of the old RFA guard where you, you got basically the middle tier slot money. And and I, yeah, I just wonder if that has weighed on him a bit. Is that the team's moved to a different on. style? What? What were you yeah. saying? Uh, first year, that 100% that'll weigh on you. First year. Yeah. So there you go. Like, I think maybe he's having a tougher time adjusting and that people have been less patient with him because there's more pressure on the team. And yeah, yesterday, just watching him, I went, ah, you know what? Maybe he'll just be fine come playoff time and we're all going to look like idiots and there's going to be just a ton of tweets going out about like all the old freezing cold takes exposed where people just start retweeting like Morgan Riley sucks, bench Morgan Riley, Morgan Riley's out of here. And then he's going to play, you know, 20 minutes and be solid for them come postseason time. And everyone's, yeah. Just yeah, it's it's tough picturing them, I guess, against those teams like Tampa and Boston, where they do such a good job of getting to the front of the net and being bullies, and that's the one part of Morgan Riley's game that suffers. And so I think it just it brings out a different level of fear in people, and so they hold them to a bit of a higher standard. Um, well, yeah, you could always again like T.J. Brody. I know and him play pretty well together, but I also know. Mark Giordano and Brody play well together and maybe McCabe could be that guy you know he'd play his offside or uh, you know maybe a Shen I'm I'm just looking at guys that you could tinker with that could help with certain aspects of his game of boxing out in front Uh, again you can't really box out the same way today as you could five years ago with the way the cross checking and all that is and you can't box out from the corner anymore the same way because it's interference so it it is a lot trickier for defensemen to pick up guys sticks because the forwards and the players get a lot more freedom to do what they want to get to the net so there could be certain guys that you could pair with him to try to combat a little bit of the deficiencies in his game and maybe it's just trying another guy but you're going to want to try it soon 
yeah. I, I just don't know. It feels like Brody all the way. And uh, yeah, yeah they, I love Brody. Yeah. I know, of course you do. And it just, yeah, yeah. They, they need to play him and McCabe a ton of minutes. They seem to want that matchup pairing, but then there's just no perfect guy with Riley. And so I think it, it's going to end up being McCabe has to elevate somebody and then Brody has to be with Riley. And then you just figure out the rest at the bottom. Yo, we got to run. Um, thanks for coming on today though. I always appreciate it. And yeah, we'll, we'll start ramping things up and have you basically on regularly throughout the playoffs, man. You can't wait. Can you? Oh, I'm just excited to get this over with. Like, you know, yeah. just get like, just let's go. Like I'm yeah. with those guys as, as someone who watches yeah. every single game. I'm like, yeah, all right. Enough, uh, enough Leafs talks on them playing the Ottawa Senators. Well, if you Let feel like this, could you imagine how they feel? No, because yeah. they get hit and go. they got to exercise. I just get to sit. Yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. nice sitting. I got a cloud couch. It's great. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's way, way, way better than having to play. Uh, Christopher Stieg, two-time Stanley Cup champion, created the Clever app, which, again, if you're a coach, um, go follow it on Instagram. You get a better look at kind of what, uh, yeah, Chris is doing and how to utilize it. And yeah, you can reach out and look into the technology. Thanks for coming on buddy. I'll, I'll talk to you later. You take care. See you, man. Uh, quick break. Let's come back. I'm going to talk to my former producer. Get some picks for NCAA. It's happening today, baby. Let's go. Together, we get to witness Scotty Barnes get better and better. Scotty turns and fires the stones. Toronto Raptors basketball on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Start your day off right with the perfect blend of sweets and savory. McDonald's bacon and... Sportsnet 590 The Fan. <laughs> what an intro. So, I know that this was for Daniele, but I want <laughs> yeah March Madness music when I'm doing Best Bats brought to you by Botano, the 2022 Global Sports Betting Operator of the Year. It is that time. Um, you need to make your picks. I can tell you again that Botano, the amount of offerings, insane. There are so many things that you can bet on. I, I don't want to switch out of this tab. I should have opened up two to look at what basically the average is for some of these games today. But yes, I'll be prop betting. I'll be doing all kinds of different things. I've got my bracket in front of me. I actually got my bracket from our next guest, uh, Daniela Franceschi. I, so Blake Murphy, I mm-hmm. let him pick my two bets yesterday and he picked the loser. So oh, I'm, saying, come on. I'm saying, I'm saying it's not my fault. I'm saying <laughs> that I picked a winner, which was the over in the Sacramento Kings Bulls game. Mm-hmm. My logic was solid. Blake made me go chalk with the Lakers beating the Houston Rockets, and they lost. So that one's on Blake. So I'm going to say that I'm 0-2 because of Jakob Pertl missing by a point uh, or by a basket. And my first bet was Leafs to yeah to score over 5.5 and, and win, mm-hmm. and they lost. They lost the Buffalo Sabres. They were winning 2 nothing though. So, again, like yeah? these are almost bets. So I'm bringing you in. I'm, I'm bringing okay. you in. Let's for... reverse the tie, J.D. Let's do it. That's, that's what I'm saying. You have an opportunity. Do you see the opportunity I'm giving you, Daniela? You can be the first. Huge. Yeah. You can be the first winner of the Botano best bet. Yeah. Like you, it's right there. It, it's on a platter. It would be an honor. So let's hopefully I, do it and we can nail the pick and then have a good productive day and a very prosperous one financially too. Oh God. I want that so badly. Like, <laughs> there's, there is truly, when it comes to sports betting, I would say, yeah, this is number one. If you can have a good first day of March Madness betting, 
that's the best thing you can experience. It's, it's sweet. the most amount of games. You can just you feel like such a winner at the end of the day. You feel like you've paid for your expenses for a trip mm-hmm. like that you're about to take, which oh, yeah. is betting on the rest of the tournament. Your bracket looks like it's fine. You're starting to dream about being able to get that actual prize pool. I love it. Okay, so let's just start with this. Um Let's let's start with your tournament outright winner, and then we'll close with your best bet. Because okay. right now the Houston Cougars are really like on Batano sneaky heavy favorites, plus yes. four fifty to win the tournament. Alabama, I guess, with all of the controversy around them, has slipped a little bit in the odds. They're plus seven hundred, and then yeah, Team Canada, the Purdue Boilermakers, <laughs> plus a thousand. The UCLA Bruins, the same thing, which I gotta yeah. say I was a little bit surprised by. Jayhawks plus twelve hundred. Arizona Wildcats plus 1,400. Is that the cutoff line for you, or are you including Gonzaga, the perennial chokers, Texas, Connecticut, Marquette, the, the next tier down? Like, where does the the winner of this tournament cut off to you, and who do you let win? Where's great, the best value? Great question. Great question, because I think there's a ton of parity throughout the entire bracket this year, maybe more so than ever, and there are a lot of teams that you can look at and say, oh, I can see them making a run this, that, and the next, but I really think there's probably a small number of teams that could actually win it. I cut it off. I would I would throw Texas into the grouping after. So I would I would go up until Arizona, and then I would throw Texas in there too. That Those are the ones for me that I'm looking at. That's why I think it's actually really fascinating. He, I don't like the fact that Houston's the favorite, but Houston is the pick for me. Houston's yeah. the pick. Marcus Sasser is the is is the big air big you know red flag right now. Is what's his health like? He uh, he he exited their semifinal game in the AAC tournament last weekend. Um, so, but you know he's going to be a game time decision today. So if he plays, all will hopefully be well. But that to me, I'm I'm huge on them. The whole that they've they've been knocking on this door for so long, JD. Right? Like Kelvin Sampson's been knocking on this door. Mm-hmm. His team is ready. The team is ready. They're very good. I like them. Bama. I'm surprised Bama's not the overall favorite. To be honest with you, because I think top to bottom they're the best team. I think it's just to me the the reason I won't pick them is simply because of the controversy surrounding Brandon Miller and everything that's gone on there, and the fact that he hasn't they they've just been motoring along like nothing's happened. Um, that yeah. to me is why I won't I won't lay money with them. But the fact that they're plus seven hundred and my best value of the of the outrights is Arizona. Arizona is another team. Just seems like year over year over year. And now people going into this one, they're a two seed, but people are really kind of sleeping on them a little bit. And yet they have a tremendous front court and good veteran backcourt depth, and a, a team that has good good depth overall, top to bottom. Good coach Tommy Lloyd, his second time around now in the tournament. I so I think they're another one. If there's any team from that region in the South to beat. Um, to beat uh, Alabama, I think Arizona is capable of doing it. So those those are the ones I'm looking at in terms of the outrights. Okay, well, let me tell you something. There's a bracket that's filled out in front of me, and it has the Arizona Wildcats as the winner of this. Yeah, tournament. so I, I like that. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I'm in on Arizona, too, and I will say that I usually do. Arizona is why I fell in love with college basketball. There was a team before your time that had Mike Bibby <laughs> on it, uh, and yeah, uh, that they, they ended up winning the tournament, and I was kind of yeah. sold on them. For They're life, the last so. Pac-12 team to win it. That's right, and so uh, we are pulling for the Arizona Wildcats. Okay, but that said, um, Team Canada is the Purdue Boilermakers, right? Yes, like they're the Zach Eadie. They're one scene. They've got Zach Eadie. So, yeah, quickly on this one, he's I think he started playing basketball only at 15 years old. Correct. These are the dudes that now look awesome. He's 7'4". Mm-hmm. He's the tallest player in Big Ten history. Um, there are nights where I've tuned in and watched him where he has just looked completely and utterly dominant. But, yeah, the stories of these tournaments a lot of times are the 
huge prospect ends up getting phased out and guard play can end up being more important. What, what do you think of Purdue's chances? And yeah, do you think Zach Eady can find a way to push himself in the first round or he's just pretty much locked as a second round pick? Well, NBA wise, let's start with, let's start with Zach. Um, mm-hmm. I got to admit, he's become more of a player than I ever thought he would be uh, watching him. I saw him when he first started playing basketball in person, 15 years old. With, with Northern Kings, which is a major AAU program out here, and they yeah. basically brought him in and just were like, hey, you're you're tall, we're going to make you a player. And they started developing him, working on his skills, and he struggled playing in these local AAU tournaments to keep up with the pace. And that's with, like, you know, guys that, that weren't, aren't, we're not talking, like, D1 caliber players at this point either. So I, I remember seeing him and thinking, okay, I, I can see why a program is going to take a chance on him. But Purdue really was like the perfect spot. He goes there, good, the right coach, the right system, because they value bigs more than a ton of other teams and the way they use him. It's just, it's perfect. And he's improved so much as a finisher, as a free throw shooter. My thing with Purdue is I, I'm really concerned about the backcourt because they're both freshmen. Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith are, and Brandon Newman's another guy. I mean, there's not really this X factor guy in that backcourt that makes me go, okay, when things get hot late in the game, if Zach, if they can't throw it down to Zach, there's somebody that can make a big shot for you. I don't think they no, have that's that. That's immediate right? death. That's like I need to adjust my bracket and take them losing earlier. This, but and, but this, is the, this is the thing, though. When I look at their region, and yeah. I, was, I was just actually, Austin and I were joking about it here. I look at the region, and I, I'm not sure I like a ton of teams to actually beat them before they get to, like, the Elite Eight. The only team that has, I think, the right ingredients to beat them early is if Memphis wins um, their first-round matchup and they play Memphis because Memphis plays fast, they press, and and Penn, Penn State did this to the Purdue on the weekend. They, they were down double digits, getting hammered. They started pressing them, turned them over like crazy. Why? Because the guards are young and inexperienced, and they've sped them up. It takes Zach Eady out of the game. That's the recipe to possibly beat them early. Otherwise, I just don't, in that bracket, I don't know. I'm not crazy about the teams that are lining up to, to possibly play them and beat them before, like, an Elite Eight. Listen, I want to root for Purdue anyway, so I have them going deeper in this tournament. Yeah. And I'm also fading Memphis because I think that Penny Hardaway is clearly a great recruiter. I I don't know if he's actually a good coach um, because good yeah, point. they seeming they seemingly end up falling pretty far short when it comes to the talent that they bring into that program for the last couple of years where he's been there. Okay, so last one, let's do it. This is your Batano best bet yeah. of the day. There's a lot of pressure because mm. you can be the man here. You can be you know Batano Franceschi. You can be the one. <laughs> So let's let's get this right. Who's your upset pick of the day? We're not going to go chalk. We're going to go. I don't yeah. care if it's even like a slight dog. Okay. But somebody that you like to win today. Let's go. Okay. I'll give you. I'll give you a true, true upset. Twelve uh, okay. five. The Charleston San Diego State game. Charleston plus five. That's the one I, I I would circle. Charleston. The the other one that's interesting to me actually. They're technically a dog in betting terms, but they're the higher seed is Mizzou. Mizzou is the seven seed, and I, it's, I think they're playing Utah State in that game. They're they're plus one and a half right now um, on Botano. Okay. So that that was one. I'm like, okay, interesting. And I actually think they have the best player in that game in Kobe Brown. So and he's had a fantastic season. So them being dogs, I was kind of surprised when I was looking at it earlier this week. Is that week. game today? That one is today, yes. Okay. That one so is today. So then we're going to make that one the best bet of the day today. Okay, Mizzou. And then, we're, yeah, we're going to go with Mizzou. 
Okay, yeah, Missouri Tigers. Actually, it's an early game. It's it 140, is. so we're yep. going to figure this one out right away. Um, I think, yeah, I think I already have them because my bracket, I almost always go nine seed over eight seed because we mm-hmm. have one where the valuation is such that you get more points for an upset, and that technically counts. Yes, so it does, I don't yeah. think I've, <laughs> I don't think for, I don't think there's been a single year where I've picked an eight seed in the fan league unless it's been directly the team I'm rooting for to win, uh, or to make a Sweet 16, a team that I have a real emotional investment mm-hmm. in. But either way, um, I like this pick. I'm in on Mizzou, um, Daniele Franceschi, our NCAA insider um, for the Botano Best Bet. That segment, of course, brought to you by Botano. Um, just an amazing sports book. Just an incredible amount of offerings. Uh, go there. Um, they've got early payouts. Just there's, there's so many different offerings. Make sure that you go check it out. The game starts now at Botano. Uh, Daniele, thanks for joining me. Quick break. Let's come back. Um, next hour, we've got Dan Hanzoos. But first, I want to talk about Canada baseball and what the future of this tournament that I don't really know what to make of it is. So, yeah, I mentioned it off the top. There's just an insane amount in the sports world right now, so I'm going to try to cram in as much as possible today. Um, We did college basketball. We did the Leafs. I got to talk about the World Baseball Classic. So, Canada's out. Sucks. They It was a nail-biter for a lot of the game. I, I think that Canada, or I don't know how much I will say Canada, We'll see what the ratings were for something like this. I think for it's this is a tournament for diehards. This is still a tournament for baseball fans. People, I think, don't really quite understand in just about any country other than the the baseball you better show ups where there's real pressure. I think it got to the Dominican Republic, by the way. They end up losing. Um here it just it doesn't seem overly clear. Hey, are the stakes massive for this? They do it every four years. That's Olympic-esque. It's it's why I am not super, super, super encouraged about the future of the hockey world championships. It'll be fine here, right? It'll be fine in Canada, but there is something to be said about heritage branding with some of these things and making it feel important to everybody and making you feel like you're engaged in it. And I know the pandemic screwed up with the timeline of this tournament, but... It's so close to the MLB season. You've got players that don't want to go, which for Canada was a problem because they're a country where you kind of need everybody to go. It's fine when you're in the United States and you're plucking from a million people. It's I was going to say it's fine when you're the Dominican Republic, but yeah, they lost, so never mind. But either way, you get the point. You need a, a bigger turnout. And something I'll discuss with Ennis on Good Hour tomorrow is if we just put too much pressure on that as Canadians as sports fans of international sports because yeah hockey obviously everybody goes because it's the internationally that's the number one badge of honor you can have i think as an athlete is to be a representative a representative of the canadian men's or women's national hockey team that's number one you're seeing a real rise in the improvement of canada soccer where players want to be a part of it more they really need to clean it up on the administrative things uh, side of things because that is a nightmare and you really don't want to lose any of that momentum and you want to make sure that people like Christine Sinclair are still absolutely 100% engaged in helping build the women's program that has had a ton of success. But with basketball, we're seeing a little bit of momentum and baseball sort of took it on the chin because a lot of Canadian players 
weren't there of acclaim. But I, I went down the list, and it really wasn't as bad. The biggest ones were Charles LeBlanc of the Miami Marlins, who I don't know why he didn't go. Um, Josh Naylor, who had this quote, quote, I want to go, but God forbid I get hurt, end quote. We'll get into that in a second, but you're playing baseball right now. You're in spring training. You're playing baseball, and I'm sure a lot of these guys are thinking, well, it's more competitive, and I go a little bit harder if there are stakes, and so the risk of injury. What what are we talking about here? This is This is where modern athlete culture, to me, has gotten so out of control with the way teams fear guys getting hurt. The load management era of pro sports. To me, if you want to get ready for a season, you want to actually have a competitive advantage, you go to the World Baseball Classic because you're already dialed in to start the year. I get it. It's 162 games. Man, what a absolute slog that must be for these players. We just referenced the Leaf season. This baseball is every single day. You have to travel. Then you got to get back in the spring. I understand it's a commitment, but it's also playing for your country and I, I think that for Josh Naylor, the opportunity to play with Bo, who hit a huge home run in that game, it it kind of sucks. feels like we got deprived a little bit of something. This is an attitude player. This was a big bat in the middle of the lineup, a guy who really would have made a difference, and he doesn't go because he's afraid of getting hurt. And and our whole default position as sports fans now always has to be, oh, respect the player. This is the hard decision, blah, blah, blah. No, just go, man. Just go play baseball. You're playing baseball right now anyways. Go do it for your country. And this whole getting hurt thing. I, I just, it's gone too far. It's one thing if you're James Paxton or Mike Soroka. I'm giving those guys a pass because they actually have dealt with a billion injuries. Those two guys are, poor Soroka, I hate putting him with Paxton even thinking about it this way, but those two guys are officially rubber stamp injury prone dudes. Soroka looked like the future of baseball in this country and he just, he can't stay on the mound. It feels unlucky with him. It doesn't feel as much like He's got the Carlo Koliakovo thing where you go, is he injury prone or is he unlucky? Um, Jameson Tyon is a dual citizen. Joey Votto hurts, so he gets a pass from the Ben Ennis crowd. But I'll be honest, I I don't feel like Joey Votto is going to this tournament if he's healthy. <laughs> I just really don't. Um, to me, the most frustrating group of players that did not go, three Toronto Blue Jays pitchers are Canadian. Three. They just made a trade. You forgot that they brought in Adam Mako. This was a tournament where there were a lot of prospects. Adam Mako didn't go. Okay? Zach Pop. Hey, everyone was so excited. Zach Pop, the Canadian, they're bringing him in. Didn't go. Okay. And then there's the weird Jordan Romano. He committed to Italy young when Canada wouldn't commit to him. Whatever. Jordan Romano, we don't flash up the Italian flag when you come out of the bullpen to close ninth inning games. The stadium goes red because you are a Canadian. And yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, it's kind of annoying. It's kind of annoying that you don't go pitch for Italy and you won't pitch for Canada. Just how about the three guys that are on the Toronto Blue Jays that we pump up as being Canadian, give a little bit of that back. That's all. All I'm saying is that. And here's, Here's the thing. You can say that, oh, J.D., you're just a media guy. You're so hothead. You're so idiot. You don't know what these guys are going through. They're just warriors, blah, 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 blah. Here's Edouard Julien, who showed up and represented his country, talking yesterday about the future of this program. In our pool, we were ranked fourth uh, before the tournament. And just to come here and finish third and um, put a good battle against all the teams. Um, and we showed everybody, yeah, we have a younger team. Yeah, we have 
Um, we don't have the bigger names that all the other teams had, but we were able to play with them. Um, it doesn't mean that we're Canadian, that we don't play 12 months a year. And um, I think we got a little bit of respect from other countries, and we're going to be back in four years. Man. We had a younger team. Hopefully all the guys are going to be up there, and um, we're going to be ready for in four years. Hopefully most of the players come, and we're going to, we're going to put a good team together in four years. There you go. There's a Canadian guy talking with pride, happy that they exceeded expectations, but upset that they didn't make it, saying that this is a young group. That team was loaded with prospects. I think Buck Martinez said during the broadcast yesterday that, I don't want to get it wrong, but just a ton, a ton, a ton of guys that are organizationally top 30 prospects for this team. And a lot of older guys showed up, and good for them, truly. I'm, I'm happy that there are players like Omont and Axford who wanted to go to this tournament still, wanted to play baseball, and were ready to suit up for their country. And, and again, they played, some, they played some meaningful stuff. All of the guys that went deserve a ton of credit for going and doing it. Obviously, Freddie Freeman was a huge bump, and it was a blow to the team. But, yeah, Freddie Freeman is house money. And it's awesome that he wants to represent this country in honor of his mother because he's a guy that could play for USA – but yeah, the guys who are actually born and raised here or raised here or have those connections to this country, you, you do hope that you show up because Canada doesn't have a chance unless everybody does buy in. And maybe not even to win this tournament, but how fun would it have been if we were still watching Canada throughout the weekend where they were going into, I think it's the quarterfinals, um, that that would have been had they moved on in this tournament. Anyways, a lot of top organizational prospects, but you heard it there. From, you, like that that's a great clip from Julien because he's talking about them being young and they need to kind of keep that commitment and I think that you, that's what you're seeing a little bit right now with Canada basketball that's what you're certainly seeing with Canadian soccer although they saw a ton of success which I'm guessing makes this more exciting and more yeah exhilarating to be a part of you hope that these young players on the Canadian roster that they do still feel that way as they enter the major leagues and that the clubs that start to pressure them a little bit or put a tiny bit of pressure on them, that they still feel empowered to go to this tournament. Okay, but here's my fear. Because good for Canada, proud of those guys that played. Team's a little bit sloppy, a little bit young, but respect. you got to give them respect. Here's the fears. I know Edwin Diaz's injury was a fluke and that he was celebrating and it was stupid, but he is... Think about all the players that get marketed nationally in Major League Baseball. He's sneaky high on the list. When you're the closer, you're the closer in Major League Baseball, people know you. And you have that celebration where you come out, you play in New York. You were a huge trade. You were involved in a huge trade to go to New York. You're one of the franchise's faces. It's like him and Pete Alonso. We could talk about the starting pitchers, but I actually think it might be him over the starters. Like Anyway, it just feels like it has massively changed the Mets' season. Poor, Fla- poor Frank Fleming. Just got to say it. Poor Frank Fleming. But he gets that injury, and it's just a reminder of everybody is so risk-averse because there is so much money at play. Freddie Freeman gets pulled for the hamstring thing, fine, but what did Ernie Witt say? He said, that's the Dodgers' decision. They make this call. These super cautious clubs are always going to exert pressure, and I just think that the trend of where we're going with all these things is not 
less caution or less let's build the game this way, Major League Baseball is probably looking at this and saying, we think our product is improving. We're going to have four years now with the pitch clock, with changing rules, with faster baseball games, with maybe they end up marketing the stars better. Maybe they end up doing a better job on social media. I don't know how much it's going to grow, but I do think that baseball is going to benefit from some of these rule changes, at least out of the gate. The sport is fun. They don't have to compete against people. They do dominate the summer. There's a lot of reason to buy baseball stock right now. I just don't know where in four years this tournament is going to be and whether international baseball will ever just like fully take off to the point where, yeah, you are going to get that representation from a country like Canada, where you are going to have those stakes, where you're going to have the casuals that are invested in this this close to a baseball season. It seems like a really good idea. Who doesn't want to wrap themselves in the flag and watch pro sports? It's awesome. It's amazing. I loved it. And I thought I wasn't even going to be in on this tournament because of the names involved. And then guess what? I watched every single game, and I watched pretty much every single out. Not the American outs. Those ones were gone. (laughs) Turned that game off. Either way, the pitchers being on a pitch count limit, it makes it feel a little gimmicky. Like, you, you can't say that it's a huge stake tournament when the best pitcher for your team is only allowed to throw a certain amount of time. And I thought that the USA going was going to have a major impact just when we saw that lineup and, yeah, how they represented and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure this tournament will ever be able to fully take off. One thing I am curious about, though, is whether or not Randy Rosarena has officially entered a top um, Toronto slash Canada villain status. He OPS 15-56 against the Jays in the playoffs, and now he was the best player on a team that eliminated Team Canada, and he wasn't even supposed to be on that team. He's Cuban. His Mexican citizenship didn't happen until 2022. And there is always something, even though Canada had Freddie Freeman, and I think Freddie Freeman's more Canadian than Randy Rosarena is uh, Mexican, but there is something always when you lose to the team that has the player that shouldn't be there that pisses us off more. Which again, for Canada, Canada soccer, all this different stuff, we've not been immune to this, but there's something about the Randy Rosarena thing that bothered me a lot yesterday. Uh, quickly, before we take a break and do Dan Hansis, I want to talk about uh, our friend Ariel Hawani because yesterday he signed off the show and he was like, oh, by the way, Francis Ngannou is going to be on. And I went, holy crap, i got to watch that. And then all of a sudden Ariel pulls Conor McGregor out of the sky. He shows up and he's in studio. And I want to play this clip of Conor McGregor in with Ariel. One, because, man, it's just it's a reminder to me to be a better host because Ariel just, like, the way he conducts this interview is perfect, where it's just right question, right question, right question, right to the point, let the superstar guest fill the air. And then two, though, is I I think that it does give us some pretty damn good insight into what the future of Conor McGregor is going to be. All right, roll it, Austin. That's it. Was this your first choice, ultimate fight? Like, was this the scenario when you thought of the comeback and you had a lot of time to think of it? Was this the scenario that you had in your mind? Uh, Coach the ultimate fighter. And ultimate Chandler. fighter and Chandler. Was that no, your idea or no, their the idea? Ultimate fighter just kind of presented itself. It was originally to be against Nate. It was Nate, me versus Nate. So I had a. Gr- I, I, I did not mind who it was against, to be honest. Nor do I mind who I compete against. That's widely known. So I, I had, I had agreed to it. It was, it was Nate. I kind of, it was like a day or two before. It's and now it's Chandler. So wow. I'm not sure what went on, on, on on that end, but. Um, it was me versus Chandler, and that's it. I have no problem with it. I'm happy with it, and it's going to be a good bout for sure. Were you disappointed when it wasn't Nate? No. No, I'll, I'll, I'll get that again. We'll get, we'll get that trilogy. Uh, that trilogy will happen at some stage for sure. Despite the fact that he's gone? 
Oh, well, he was gone, and that's why he was gone, but he was still doing the show, right? So I was kind of like, uh, you know what, what way that is, Ariel? That's all politics and all that, so we, we must fight. We're one apiece. It's a great rivalry, and it was a great fight. So we got to square that away for sure. One of those that you'll be disappointed, like when you're 80, old and gray, and that fight doesn't happen, the third one, um, would, would it be a disappointment? Am, am, I, am I a person not to have, not to get the fights made and done and happen? No. But but... all the fights I've had, you know, I, when I say it, it happens. Okay. So I have a load of bouts left in me and, you know, a load of stories un incomplete, and I'm excited to continue on and get them, get them done. 170 <laughs> or 155 is the fight? Uh, 170. One, is 170. that the new weight class? No, nah, it's not. I don't. No, nah, I'm 170 next, man. Believe it out. You win this fight. Do you get a title shot? Yeah, I'd like I'd like so. I would like that. You get the winner of Leon and Camaro? I may be, I may be present for the card. I, this I, weekend? I, yeah, I had with the Black Forge. We were making moves at the Black Forge in London, and I was scheduled to go out there. So after this, Gunny's also on the card. So it'd be good to see him live. Right. And it'd be good to watch that uh, welterweight title for sure. Okay, so Conor McGregor has a huge chance to reclaim his legacy here. If all of this ends up being true, he's able to stay healthy. Because, let's be honest, Habib embarrassed him, and he basically flipped the script, changed everything that we think about McGregor. He's one of the most entertaining and exciting athletes, frankly, we've ever seen. Um, his rise was unquestionably, to me, the best thing that ever happened to the UFC. Most exciting moment in UFC history was watching him just dominate and then get those belts and go back and forth with Jose Aldo. Incredible, incredible, incredible. But this feels like two doors here. One is he loses this fight, and then he's the dude who fights names. And we just invest in, one is see Conor McGregor fight, and we see him get Nate Diaz, and they close the trilogy out, and that's fun, blah, 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 blah. He'll figure it out. I do trust the juice that he would have within the organization for them to get that done. The other door is he climbs back into the conversation of the greatest fighters that have ever done this thing. The Habib thing will always be just a tough mark on his resume. He'll never be able to do it. But if he goes up and he gets a third belt at 170, that's massive. And he's just not that far away. And so it doesn't feel that foreign to me that that ends up happening that he beats Michael Chandler, that Chandler tries to stand and bang with him and Conor McGregor hits him with one of those famous hooks and all of a sudden Leon Edwards wins and Conor McGregor's in a fight with Leon Edwards and I don't think he can win that fight. Like, I absolutely think he can win that fight. The Kamaru Usman one is tougher to see because of the wrestling and we just saw the, we've seen the Habib playbook and if that ends up happening, I don't know. But either way, it's exciting to have Conor McGregor back in the mix. It's exciting that he's showing up on Ariel's show and that he's making these proclamations. Now, speaking of exciting, Dan Hanzus is a uh, lifelong Jets fan. A lot of suffering. I wonder where yesterday ranked just in terms of like how he's feeling, if there are any mixed emotions, if it's pure excitement that Aaron Rodgers, he's focused on being a New York Jet. That's next. Sportsnet 590, the fan. So, one of my best friends, one of my college roommates, diehard Jets fan. When we were in university, he just had every Jets jersey under the sun. Gorgeous, gorgeous jerseys. But the names on some of those, yeah, weren't the greatest. They're okay. I did like the Santana Moss one. And I was talking to my buddy yesterday, and he felt a little complicated about Aaron Rodgers um, sending his intentions to the New York Jets. He intends to play for the New York Jets. Dan Hanzus of the best football podcast in the business, no question about it. The Around the NFL podcast. Few things 
um, happened for the New York Jets lately where it feels like it's moving forward, that you get something. It's not done, but how did you feel yesterday when Rodgers stated his intentions to be with your franchise? Um, how are you? I, I think it was a little bit of a relief, um, even though it, it seemed at this point by yesterday like it was happening. Um, it was a relief just because Rodgers has become such a um, hard-to-figure-out character, hard to decipher, that there was part of me that was watching that show, McAfee, and thinking to myself, is he about to pull the rug out? in some type of big pharma-type statement with Woody Johnson or something insane uh, because there is a, you know, Charlie Brown, Lucy, uh, you know, pulling the football away by being a Jets fan. So it was a relief to hear him actually say, my intention is to play for the Jets. And then you got a little bit of shading why the deal hasn't done yet, which brings a, another level of anxiety. But overall, as a Jets fan, you're feeling in a good place because this is going to happen. He's going to be the quarterback of the team on week one, and that changes so much around this team and potentially the AFC. Okay. Do you buy the Andrew Brandt theory, though, that this gave the Packers added leverage and that it makes you a little bit uncomfortable? Like, what is the price point that makes you, Dan Hanzoos, uncomfortable as a Jets fan that they give up for this guy? Um, well, I'll start by saying I trust Joe Douglas, the GM of the Jets, who's made some really good trades. Um, and he's handled these negotiations. Although this one's obviously unique, he's been good at negotiations so far. What would make me uncomfortable is if that one report that was floated by ESPN, and ESPN has floated some suspect reports connected to the story already, but this one's from Schefter, their top insider, uh, and he had said that perhaps they were looking for a Matthew Stafford-type trade, uh, two first-round picks, which is insane for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact, yes, while Rodgers going on that show and saying he wants to play for the Jets could put pressure on the Jets to get the deal done, it also kind of put it out very clearly that this is who else? Are, who else are they going to trade with at this point? Where is Rodgers going to sign off on at this point and move on? Now there could be a team laying in the weeds that can make a play if this thing really stalls out, but it does just feel like in the best interest of both teams to start moving forward and, and put this, this acquisition to bed. Uh, but, yeah, I guess you could say that Green Bay could use the leverage that they have remaining to make this really uncomfortable and try to make Joe Douglas blink. But I don't think, I don't think it plays out that way. I, I, I honestly think the way the Packers operate as an organization, they're going to eventually do what is right for them as well, which is get the most they can and just move forward. And I would imagine that's going to happen soon. I do think this is going to be funny if this lasts another week, though. Like, maybe not for you, oh but God. for the rest of the world watching this, it's just going to become bigger and bigger. But how often does he do the McAfee appearance? Because during the season, he does it once a week. The offseason is different. Like, imagine if he's on here a week from now and the deal isn't done. I, I kind of need that content because this is the thing about Aaron Rodgers. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I totally agree. Go ahead. This is this is there is some like built-in absurdity, and it it can ramp up to levels that you almost have to appreciate it after a while. Well, I don't even mean to make this comparison for the fact that they each have one championship. They each were very publicly anti-vax guys, but yeah, Aaron Rodgers, a little bit of he's NFL Kyrie. Like you're getting NFL Kyrie at this point. Yeah, like. <laughs> oh, wow. the, 
Well, it's true. He's he's the guy where you look at it, even with this whole him with the lose my number with Schefter stuff, I go, all right, this is kind of fun from most guys. But with him, there's just a level right now of just anger. He's got the Kyrie thing of I'm the smartest guy on the planet and all of the rest of you watching this are idiots and in, uninformed and I like my guys and I want to pick my spot. And I don't know. I just there, There's got to be some parallels of the feeling of being a Mavericks fan who gets Kyrie and then a couple of weeks later, he's on a live stream in front of a fire pit going, uh, here's all my thoughts on things. You're going, please no, please no. Just pl- find a way to play well with Luka Doncic. With Rodgers, it's already the stuff about the list, and he's kind of refuting it, and now it's the intention to go and the McAfee stuff. Like, there, there has to be, beyond the fact that he's 40 years old, is there a part of you that just goes, in New York, the place where your newspaper headlines actually still matter, um, somehow, yeah. they're keeping it alive, that this is just, you're, you're entering a different age of suffering as a Jets fan. Like, I'm sure that your brain does go there. You don't want to just be negative. But, yeah, what is it like getting NFL Kyrie? Yeah, that, that's wild. I mean, until Aaron Rodgers starts making movie recommendations that yeah. uh, gross out everyone, that, <laughs> yeah, it, it could get a lot worse yeah. than yeah. with Aaron Rodgers. But, uh, I'll say I'll say this. Um, yeah, I, I brought it up on the podcast yesterday, and it's a deep reference at this point. But The Graduate was, you know, an all-time film that came out in I think '67, and there's this scene at the end of the movie. It's an iconic scene with Dustin Hoffman, and and he stops a wedding, and he the the woman leaves the altar, and they run away together and they lock everyone out of the church that's trying to stop them from leaving together. He's the, he's the man that the parents don't want the girl to be with. Mm-hmm. And they flag a, a public bus and they get on the bus and drive away from the church and, and to freedom. And then the movie ends with them sitting in the back of the bus together with a big smile and excited look on their face. And then the big smile for both of them starts to give way to a little apprehension and like, what did we just do? What's next now? And that's how I feel <laughs> as a Jets scene. fan um, uh, thinking about this. And Aaron Rodgers is kind of the bride here where it's like we wanted for so long just to have a quarterback that we can believe in. And in so many ways, <clears throat> Rodgers is, the guy, is the, this, this bride that every Jets fan has ever wanted. But it's not that easy. And, of course, with the Jets, it's never that easy. And I think one thing that, that jumps out – to me is like, is this going to work? Is he still the same player? Is he going to be able to handle the market? These are all very fair questions. Is he truly invested? He's the guy that went into this darkness retreat um, and came out and went into it 90% retired. He said yesterday, like, is he going to be the teammate he needs to be and be the invested player he needs to be? Yes. Plenty of reasons for apprehension. Um, and I think the other kind of weird thing as a Jets fan is that we are such a downtrodden fan base yeah. that you just kind of, you want, it would be nice if everyone was like happy for Jets fans. Like, wow, you guys have really struggled. Worst, you know, you uh, haven't had a playoff appearance in 10 years. You, ha- you haven't had a Super Bowl appearance in 54 years. But when you get into business with Aaron Rodgers, he's such a polarizing figure and really become a negative figure for so many people that you now bring on all that criticism. I thought that the Rossini ESPN report with the uh, list of demand, people ran with that because I thought that, you know, that's a fun thing to run with and just kind of be able to bury Rogers 
bury the Jets as a hapless franchise. And it was just so frustrating as a fan who otherwise was trying to enjoy this great, exciting moment for the organization. Well, this is the other that, – that is the other parallel with him and Kyrie is Aaron Rodgers has become one of those players where everybody is now rooting against him. I, I don't really know when this flipped. It feels like maybe the last couple of years as he started to become more vocal, complaining about uh, what the Packers weren't doing for him and how he wished he had Jordy Nelson back and Randall Cobb, and now those guys are still on the list somehow. Like, he didn't have enough, but he wanted those same guys, whatever. They – he is, you're right, one of those players in the NFL right now who everyone wants to dogpile on. And then he plays the card of, I don't really care and everyone's an idiot and I'm not paying attention. But then it's very obvious whenever yeah. he opens his mouth, it's like he cares the most. He's paying attention to every single thing. It's so in his head. And I, I do wonder how that part of this is going to play out. Here's my positive spin zone from a Jets fan, like as a, from an outsider standpoint. I, I think that him and him and Brett Favre being both 39 years old going to the Jets, everyone loves making fun of that. They love doing the, oh, congrats on Jordan Love and whatever year he turns 39, you guys get him. I actually wonder if there's going to be a part of Rodgers where he looks at this and says, this is where I can really separate is I'll be the guy who gets it done in this market. Because Favre had that moment after, right? He goes to Minnesota. He was actually fourth in MVP voting that year, a year later, which is tough. He had a great start with the Jets too. Um, I, I think people forget that about the Brett Favre thing because all they remember is, you know, the photo with him in the Jets. That was kind of right. <laughs> one of our first indications that Brett Favre wasn't the coolest, best guy, that he wasn't Mr. America yeah. Wrangler commercial. Yeah. But I do think that Aaron Rodgers will care about stuff like that. And it's not going to be perfect. I think this whole idea that he's going to show up and be the most committed guy and mentor everyone and whatever, that that's a stretch. But I think that this is going to make a rejuvenated player who cares about the way history looks at him and understands the gravity of what a great season with the Jets, even getting to the playoffs and winning a round, what that would mean for him. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that, and I think there are a lot of doubts around him now. He's coming off a bad season. I think a lot was <clears throat> made of his age and is being made of his age, but also he played through a broken thumb on his throwing hand last year, and <clears throat> I think he would – I think I imagine that he would play well this season. And then you start to – you know, you put all this other stuff aside – and you just look at what would it mean to this particular Jets roster if they had a competent quarterback. That feels like a team that could win nine or ten games. What if they had a great quarterback, which Rodgers, that's within the range of outcomes there. Now you're talking a team that could contend for the division and make noise in the playoffs. And that's all Jets fans want. They, you just want to have this excitement of watching a playoff game again and feeling like you matter and you're relevant and you're not a laughing stock. So that's to me why it, one of the many reasons this move makes sense when it finally does get done. It just for the, for the franchise, uh, it's going to be such a huge revitalization uh, period for them. They're going to be in prime time again. They haven't been on Sunday night football in like 10 years because of that's course wild. they want to be because they've been terrible. Now they're going to have a bunch of primetime games. They're going to be in contention in the AFC. If this goes right, it's worth the roll of the dice. But, yes, it could absolutely come up snake eyes. And with Jets history, things typically do. But screw it. Like, that doesn't matter. Let's go into the the bold unknown together on the back of that bus. 
100%. And I actually, I'll zag a little bit on this. There's a little bit of the AFC West feel to this where the division's loading up and everyone's freaking out. And then it probably just ends up being, right? Like everyone goes, watch out, Chiefs, watch out, Bills. And that it's just going to be, yeah, Bills at the top. They win 13 games. And then the Jets are somewhere, what, you know, 10 wins. That would be awesome. Dolphins kind of similar, but neither of them really feels like a contender. Or one of them ends up with the Russell Wilson situation, whether that's Tua with more injuries or with Aaron Rodgers and his age. But, yeah, I I just think what was the other option if you're a Jets fan? And that brings me to this is, like, you keep – you mention it a lot. And I think it bothers you as a fan of your podcast at times where you embrace Jets fandom. And I think that, you know, you recognize and you're someone like me who grew up being a fan of a sport and now has made this into a business. But – Yes, part of being a sports fan is having that space to bitch about something, right? To be mad about something that is sort of supposed to be meaningless and out of your control, and that's kind of fun. But then there is this overwhelming amount of negativity that can boil up with a fan base that has just been downtrodden for a very, very long time, that has been a laughing stock for a long time. And this is where I think Jets fans and Leaf fans, where I live, that they can mm. they, they can really commiserate on the same thing, where... I wonder sometimes if there actual is a tangible impact of a fan base where they're waiting for everything to go wrong so they can be like, see, I knew it. We're cursed. It's awful. Like, where are you on that actually mattering? The whole negativity of the fan base thing, the, the people who are waiting for the bottom to fall out, the people who are seemingly like addicted to the darkness and really want to look at everything the team does through that prism. Like, do you think that matters in any even small way to these teams? Because I kind of think it does. It doesn't make it, yeah, it doesn't make any logical sense that the past would affect the present or the future. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I do, I've tried it both ways in my life as a fan. I've tried to shut out all of, of the noise and be relentlessly optimistic and, and just say, of course, something that happened Mark Gassino's roughing the passer in the 1986 playoffs. Of course, that those type of ghosts don't affect what's going to happen in 2023 or whatever. And then and then something happens, and I'm like, I go the other way, and I'll and I'll just be like, watch the entire game, waiting for the Jets to choke because they always choke. And that's a that's a tough way to go through through things as well. And you know, I get I get um, accused uh, by listeners of our show of being defensive about the Jets, it's like. Hell yeah, I'm defensive about being a Jets fan. Like, yeah. walk a mile in these shoes, yeah. and you'll understand how difficult this entire um, this entire uh, fan base, how difficult this process has been. Anyone that is younger than 53 years old uh, has never seen a Super Bowl, and how many, like, jokes at the expense of the franchise, many of them perpetuated because of bad decisions by people in charge. Um you, we've lived through all of it, and it's, it, it kind of does leave scarring. And you try to spin forward and stay optimistic. And this is the case more than any other case with, with Rodgers coming in. There's so much evidence that this is going to blow up in the team's face. And you just, as a Jet fan, have to pick a side. Are you going to say, actually, this is a pretty loaded young roster now getting a Hall of Fame quarterback with a chip on his shoulder? Or are you going to say, wow, this is going to be so funny when this blows up in six, eight months? Like, Pick your side, and and we'll see how it rolls. I think where it does matter is, like, obviously traditional media spaces are shrinking, right, in terms of importance. And even when we're talking about the New York Post headlines that are going to end up happening here, that is 
a social media construct at this point more than it is these guys walking through the city and seeing it and going, oh, my God, and it being the talk about like a, a lot of this is moving online. And technically, you're supposed to be able to shut that off. But if these guys who have been raised on phones now and have a million people messaging them every day or, or anything like myself, it's it's impossible to stay off of these things and not to at least look at stuff and, yeah, observe it. So where I think it really happens is there's a need for these fan bases to over complain when things go poorly and and that is where i wonder if it does kind of saturate into these guys and it's just it's harder and harder and harder like as it goes on and as it builds and as these fan bases become more jaded to not let that in some way affect you as a player like that's why i think teams in hockey like the tampa bay lightning it's so much easier to win because if anything bad happens guess who knows no one like no one's aware right they're going Oh, we go to one hockey game a year, and it's really nice, and they hang banners here. That's really cool. Anything happens here in Toronto, and it's a 48-hour news cycle. And with football, like in New York, especially with the Jets, it's even worse. And, yeah, by the way, it's last Sunday night football game. Do you remember what it was for the Jets? I, I believe it was the Cowboys-Jets, like, week one opener on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. I'm pretty oh, sure that man. was it. Hey, they have it. The guys here, my stat checkers, they could be wrong, say it was New England. Jets lost 37 to 16 on November 13th, 2011. So All right. maybe so it was they've that got it season. wrong. That's a long yeah. time ago. That's a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, Mark Sanchez, uh, obviously, the, that time. It's been a while. That's kind of shocking to me, given that they still are a New York-based team. Anyways, I'm, I'm rooting for you, Dan. I'm rooting for my friend Sean. I'm rooting for my friend Matt, like the diehard fans of this team that, for the most part, they, they do think about it as how it's going to go wrong. And, hey, if anything, Zach Wilson is going to make it hell in practice for Aaron Rodgers and force him to elevate his play. And so that is that is going to be an interesting thing to watch is the Disney prince do his thing in practice and and really elevate the discourse for you guys. Hey, man, uh, I always appreciate you making the time. You got it. And just to everyone, like, hey, you can root against Aaron Rodgers, but come on, think about the Jets fans. Think about us, man. Don't root against us. Yeah. Here's, Here's your problem with that, though, is misery loves company. And I can say this with full-throated confidence when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. I was happy for them for like one second, and then I realized that the Leafs were the professional franchise with the longest drought, and I went, I hate this so much. Like, I was, I know yeah. in my heart I was rooting against them. You don't want to be alone, you know? You don't want to be alone at the top of Misery Mountain. You want someone there holding hands with you and going, hey, you're like us. This isn't just a us thing. This is a, this is spreads to a lot of different franchises. And unfortunately, like the Jets and the Leafs and the Knicks, and there's a few teams now that are sort of arm in arm in arm at the top of that Misery Mountain and going, please don't leave. I don't want to be cold up here alone. Yeah, so, no. yeah, yeah, maybe. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Again, it's the Around the NFL podcast. It is the best football podcast, so go subscribe, go review, do those things. Dan Hanzus, thanks for making time, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, bud. Talk to you soon. See ya. There he goes. Dan Hanzus of the Around the NFL podcast. 100%. I've said this, obviously, many, 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 many times before about, I don't think I've ever called it Misery Mountain, but yes, the Maple Leafs are 100% at the top. There, we are there. I hate it when people go, you being miserable or you being negative about the team affects the team, but then in a small part I go, I do think that they're, you're right. Toxic positivity is worse where you're not ever allowed to criticize the team, but when you are someone who is just waiting for the bottom to fall out and doom casting... It's 
that's kind of lame to me about being a sports fan. And it gets a little tiresome, I will say, too. So I, I, I've given this advice to people who Doomcast before, and I do it myself. I really do. Of course, I think it's natural to Doomcast in your life and as a sports fan, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I read once that there's no point in Doomcasting because you're only going to live it once, or you're, gonna, you're forcing yourself to live it once, or you're going to live it twice. You're going to Doomcast, and you're going to put yourself into that spot where it's basically already happened in your mind, and you feel awful and miserable about it, and it makes you cranky or whatever. And then it does happen. It's not like you're more prepared for it. You're still as upset. You're still as miserable as before. Just try not to live it twice. Or potentially don't live it at all. So Jets versus Leafs. Who will win first? Subscribe to this podcast. Leave a five-star review. We'll be back tomorrow with Good Hour with Ennis. And uh, Ernie Witt is going to jump on too, uh, the manager of Team Canada. Can't wait to talk to him. Um, We will see you then. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave five stars. Follow on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus. Talk to you tomorrow.